Hey everyone, this is Anatoly,、um, and you're listening to the Solana No Sharding podcast. And today I have Victor with me, who is the founder of Trust Wallet. Hey Anatoly,、uh, it's nice to be here. Awesome. Yeah. So、um, tell tell us just a little bit about Trust Wallet. Yeah. So in short, Trust Wallet is a decentralized wallet that allows you to store, hold、uh, funds in crypto, and allows you to access different decentralized applications like DApps, staking. But in general, like what Trust Wallet is, is just a tool for people to get started with crypto.、Um, and our mission is to just make it accessible for everyone in the world to have it、um, and to be self-custodials of their own funds. So that, like, for people that understand crypto, I think they'll understand those words. But it, but there's just like a ton to unpack, right? So like, why do we even need wallets, right? Yeah, I think wallets are kind of the browsers、uh, to the blockchain world,、um, and you can think of this as your identity. So this is who you are, and then you have a different ways to interact with your APIs.、Uh, I would say,、um, and then it allows you to receive funds from other people, your friends. So it's a, like a bank where you can、uh, send or receive funds,、um, and this is also allows you to、um, access different decentralized applications. So this is where the identity come in, where you can access services, and you be kind of half anonymous in a way to access them. So you don't need to provide all the information.、Uh, you just sign messages with your private keys. So you you think your your view is that like、um, you're building almost like a browser, right? That that a, that a wallet is a browser, right? Yeah, you can think of this this way just because、um, regard like the way crypto is structured is that it just gave us ability to be、um, self custodial, right? And that kind of gave ability to access、uh, different services without having a need to be registered、uh, on those services.、Um, yeah, you can think of this as a browser.、Um, I. I have this like theory that you know crypto and its adoption curve is similar to the internet's because you know 1996 internet had like 40 million users, maybe 40 million browsers, but let's let's just let's just say that there were 40 million, there were 40 million internet connections, right? Not 40 million users with browsers browsing the internet in 1996, but let, let's just say that there that's where we're at,、um, and like blockchain right now I think has like 50 million wallets. From what I heard, like if you combine all the chains together, so that's enough of a market where you can do experiments, but not really enough of a marketplace where you can build like a Facebook. You know, you couldn't really build a Facebook in '96, no matter what you've done. So, like, do you think that self custody or like the Can we build a browser for crypto that is non-custodial, or I guess custodial in the sense like Coinbase, right? Do we need do we need self-custody? Are all those problems all tied in in like do they all need to be solved in one package, or can we do it piecemeal? I think you could do the piecemeal in that case, just but at the same time you kind of lose all the benefits of using crypto. So you don't want some other company to control your destiny. So you want to be in control of that. But you know the downside is many people don't know how to do it. We there is still a big learning curve how to use those products,、um, and it's our goal as a product designers to design a flow that makes it easier for people to come in and learn about projects. Um, but in order to create that experience, there is still lots of different challenges we need to overcome in terms of the technology itself. So, you, like, it's very difficult to understand for people that it takes ten minutes to send one transaction. People tend to understand like once they press a button on PayPal, it's delivered,、um, just because it goes through this Te- centralized. Technically,、service. it's not. That's the other thing, is right?、Yes. Like, you you send somebody a stuff over Venmo, they can cancel it. 
Um, that's true. But and, and there's, there's like constant Craigslist scams that are doing this, right? Agree. And they try to put lots of different protection on the Venmo side where they ask like, what's the recipient phone number? So in order to send the funds. Yeah, I do think it's the, the technology problem at first that there's not enough tooling. There's not enough design patterns for design itself. Like how do you design a good user experience? How do you do key management? It's still a big problem for, you know, big companies, exchanges to run it. But then, like, how do you build this on the wallet side? So you want to work really closely with the phone manufacturers to design a new protocols and systems that allows you to, like, more securely store those, um, you know, secret phrases and all of that. Do, do you think that the biggest hurdle for wider kind of wallet adoption or, I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in the the non-custodial right aspect of it. Like, can we get to like three, 400 million users of non-custodial wallets? Is key management the key, the key hurdle there? I do think key management is one of the problems. So I think you should look at it from like two different perspectives. So the first one is how people get to crypto and second, why they are getting into crypto. Um, so we need to solve two problems um, kind of all at once to make it all happen. So first problem onboarding, like how do you make key management um, done well? Um, Currently, like all the wallets out there on the market, they usually have pretty similar uh, process where you like create 12 seed phrase and you use it across all the wallets. They're going to give you the ability to uh, access different services. So there is a big downside because um, people tend to forget it. It's not intuitive um, and there is not a good solution. Um, so I think crypto is kind of stagnating in this sense, like there's not enough uh, innovation yet, um, but it will come in the next couple of years. And the second is like, what kind of utility can you build? I think. Building utility is easier just because there's so many um, like opportunities. Um, you know, there's lots of different application layers you can build. You know, it's about like building, lending, um, building, staking, building ability to create different applications and all that. So there's more developers right now on the side of building applications and different use cases, but not enough on the building key management systems. Um, and key management is not very easy to solve at the bigger scale because you want to make sure everything is like very secure. Um, before you roll out to all the people in the world. Um, like, yeah, um, I don't feel like I could give my parents any solution outside of like telling them to use Coinbase where they wouldn't lose their funds if they were using an external wallet. Like yeah. even like something like Ledger where the key is all stored, like if they lose that thing, it's gone, right? Exactly, yeah. So you definitely need to do lots of education. Um, I highly not recommend anyone to send funds uh, to people who never um, did crypto in the past. Um, the way I usually onboard people myself, whenever I see someone in life, um, I do like a quick tutorial, like five minutes um, and give them understanding what it is and why I need to care about it. Otherwise, people tend to forget. So, so, so Victor, you're like a one man adoption army. You're just yeah, doing <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I at least onboarded maybe like, you know, over 100 people already at least. The, um, you know, everyone in my family use it and, you know, their friends also use it. So, um, you know, I tend to send you know, some Ether or BNB to them so they can get started and kind of learn and understand what it is. Yeah. And, you know, then they come back like a year or two years after and they say like, oh, this price went up or went down. So sometimes they get disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So because they're checking, like they're checking the price and the curious is like why the price goes up or goes down. Crypto is a random number generator, right? Yeah, true. <laughs> sometimes numbers go up, some, sometimes they go down. Um, is there like I'm I'm worried that people are waiting too much on mobile phones to kind of solve this problem that like if there's so much technical like complexity in creating a like a trust zone that you can store secrets in that's recoverable between hardware because there's obviously 
a conflict of interest there, right? If you want to build a, a trust zone that cannot be hacked, you cannot migrate the state from one to the other. So the upgrade cycle kind of breaks this, right? I have a phone. How is my next generation phone going to inherit all my secrets, right? Without introducing a security hole. Um, I think it is possible. There's, you know, potential risks in general. I think what Apple is doing is quite interesting. How they like trying to protect the keychain with your, you know, password that you encrypt. Um, but still, there's going to be a company who kind of take the responsibility on centralizing a bit that part. But um, I think what Samsung and HTC is doing is really nice in terms of like showing the um, example of how things should work. They already have ability to do like social recovery on the phone level for the recovery phrase itself. So I think it's a good step forward in terms of just testing different ideas and see which one will work. But I do agree that, you know, it's still not a perfect solution if every um, manufacturer like Samsung or Apple will introduce ability to store like those private keys. So this means they could also have a backdoor. So it's still a big risk. So you still want to provide better custody. So people like full responsible for that. Um, you know, that means we need to provide, you know, some type of encryption that happens specifically in the mobile app for this specific user so that Apple doesn't have access to it. It's, it is not an easy problem to solve because of, you know, there's attack vectors that simply on a display could fake that could, could give you a fake, you know, user interface that looks exactly like trust wallet, right. And trick the user to, um, to actually submitting their seed phrase into this yeah. fake trust wallet application. So not, not only do you need like a trust zone that stores the secret, you also need a secure display and users to understand that this is a secure display and the notifications from the phone. Right? Yeah, it's yeah like... that needs to be done on like OS level, ideally. But I do agree that's a big problem uh, currently, like in space, you know, you can find, you know, hundreds of different websites with a Trezor fake website or like Mather wallet. Like, the, uh, yeah, especially yeah. on the web, it's even easier to like fake that. Uh, people who use mobile, you know, they kind of trust, you know, App Store, Google Play uh, verification model where it's a little bit harder to like push different fake apps, but people still do it. You know, there is a human factor uh, and we always report all those applications that come out, especially that, you know, Trust Wallet, like the whole UI, the whole app was uh, open source previously. And the issue we had is that we had like 20 different clones on App Store. And then we get all these users come in and complain that, you know, I downloaded Trust Wallet Pro, Pro 2 and all those versions and they like lose their funds. So I think like you oh, you, there there were already civil attacks. Oh yeah, there was on, many on, yeah. on trust wallet. Oh, yeah. That sucks. Humans yeah. are terrible. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know it's kind of tricky to fight with them. So there is another. Um, if you go to Google Play, if you type trust wallet altogether, there is an app um, that actually fakes um, and steals users' data. Um, and there's over like 10,000 downloads and we're not able to shut it down because our trademark doesn't have the space, but they still have that differently named. Um, so they still have ability to and Google. Users. I mean, that that's like a similar enough. I mean, Google isn't honoring that request to turn them off. It's been over months already. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I mean, that that's like the yeah, that, that is like a huge problem for the platforms. Um, yeah, I, I think these challenges are really like kind of sand in the gears of adoption. Like they're all small things, right? Like yeah. it's just a tiny thing, but overcoming them is super, super tough. Yeah. And also like it takes your time as a company who's trying to develop a product and you need to spend time on actually trying to protect from, you know, the external attacks in that sense. But ideally, like, you know, we want to, we're all developers, want to yeah. be focused on making a product and building something to the humanity. But instead, you'd like trying to fight with those people. You're like, oh, that's annoying. 
Yeah. I mean, like most of us too are like, I'd say vast majority of the companies in the space of startups. So we're kind of like running on fumes, trying to handle, like build everything and dealing with these kinds of issues is, is, is tough, right? Tough, tough to find time and resources for it. Um, like one thing that I, I've been trying to really struggle is like, a, is, is finding a really good actually like application interface between the apps running on chain, the app front end that's running typically in your browser window, right? And then the wallet itself, right? Like there's like a, a lot of steps there. Yeah. I think currently the way, you know, people approached it is that let's just build this like um, dev browser inside every wallet, which is, you know, a good short term solution just because it makes it easier for developers to get started. And a couple of years from now, everything is going to be all mobile native or it will be in a way where like VChat model where you have those kind of mini apps inside. But it's not going to happen on the App Store side just because, you know, VChat works in a proper way only in China because Apple doesn't have enough. Uh, leverage there so they let it happen but here in us they're pretty strict they tell like nah you're not going to do it in us they don't allow mini apps for yeah yeah they basically blocked everything and you know it's a monopoly which i don't really like because they have like different rules for different countries not based on like a law or compliance based on like how much leverage they have in the country so um you know very tricky so they have the leverage there um but you know, apple is trying to be more strict in terms of like writing html5 applications and their main probably concern is not being able to control what people are using um, and also like that kind of affects security. So they want to make sure that people who submit apps, they're all fully done natively. So they would be okay if you try to run any of those like decentralized applications, uh, most, um, but you need to have them not dynamic. So it needs to be static. So you actually know the content, you know how it works so they can test it on their side. Yeah, it's all done for security reasons, as you mentioned, you know, if we try to make it like all accessible, you know, there's going to be so many scammers who will try to build all those applications that, you know, trying to um, do something different, what user expects. Do you, um, I guess, what do, what do you see, like, I guess, the interface looking like between application, like front ends and the wallet? Like, do you think the... Like, I I think there's right now, like, there's so many different blockchains and they all have slightly different properties. Um, Do you guys see, like, a good abstraction that kind of, like, defines that already? Or do you think we're, like, what does that abstraction look like in your mind? Yeah, I think the way uh, we're trying to abstract is, like, we're trying to remove all the, you know, complicated logic for the users. And then we're trying to build developer tools for people to build applications. So one of the ideas we exploring this year and trying to build is building a mobile native application, SDK, native SDK that allows any developer to build application without thinking about private keys at all. So it's all about like, how do you build this nice compound type of interface uh, without like needing for the private keys. And then the trust wallet itself will become more like a vault which allows you to be as your identity. So we'll receive different requests and users could uh, the, the user can approve or reject transactions. So in that case, you build a native application on mobile and mobile is the kind of the easiest way to inter- interface you know, blockchain or any other service out there. Every single company built on mobile apps. Um, and so once we release this application, we want developers to build applications without the need for um, you know, so is this so is this an SDK package that'll kind of plug into my iOS app? Yeah, um, and the way it'll work, you can you would be able to access Trust Wallet mobile app from web as well. So it means that the web itself doesn't need to have any like Web three modules in, like injected. Right, yeah. You can just call like a URL scheme that will allow you to open Trust app. 
um, sign it, and it will just push back as a callback to the uh, web. But you know, you can you want to provide access to all the interfaces. It could be a native application, or it could be um, you know native uh, the the browser app. So trust. How does trust understand the this arbitrary like request to sign? Um, I think the goal for us would be to able to parse the data that they're coming and then display to a user as much as we can. I think it's still a challenge to display information properly because based on different data structures, it's a little bit tricky to tell what it right. is. So if you're signing Ethereum transaction and there is data, you know, it's all hacks encoded. Right. So in order to decode it, you need to have API files. Um, you know, you can decode for the most common ones, but at the same time, it's still hard to display what data you will be signing. Right, and, and yeah. like, what, what does this request actually mean to the user, right? Yes. In terms of like ERC-20 asset transfer or just like signing, you know, like a, like a posting a message in a message board, right? Like, yeah. how do you know what, what's actually at risk when you do the signature? Exactly, and one example would be which is really common right now. So whenever you do any swaps on any of the exchanges um, on Ethereum, uh, whenever you need to uh, swap anything, you need to give like full approval to um, smart contract to access your funds for this specific token. Um, and most people just say like, okay, I'm going to approve everything, but they don't understand yet like the importance of it. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of our goal to make sure that they will. But it takes time to develop those like user interfaces that uh, at the same time, looks easy um, and not too complicated to a user. So if you try to like pack everything into one screen and trying to explain as much more information, people just get confused. Yeah, I've been uh, the way I've been thinking about it is I think we kind of need multiple layers. One is on the kind of the client side, the trust wallet side, and then I think the chain itself should have some sort of sandboxing app like features. You know, like I was looking at Move and their resources. You know, people hate on Libra, but the language is pretty good because there is a really nice abstraction for a data type that is your like Sybil or not Sybil, but here's your countable, right? Finite supply data type mm -hmm. um, and being able to build sandboxes where I can create an environment that only allows a certain amount of withdrawals or a certain amount of basically risk, right? That I'm taking when I'm interfacing with external applications. Um, I, I think it's, I think like the future is going to be a mix of this, right? Yeah, yeah I think the way um, I would put it is that um, you would have one identity that allows you to set different limits and different uh, services that you're going to be interacting with, right? Uh, one of the examples I've seen from Argent, because it's a smart contract wallet, there is lots of ways how you can uh, modify how much the wallet can access to like different things. So you can basically say, okay, I want to set a daily limit for this wallet, for this amount, for this token. Um, and, you know, there is many things that are not available yet to do on chain itself. It's more like user interface that could actually do the logic, but I don't think that's the right solution. Yeah. Ideally, it needs to be, as you said, like on the on-chain level, all built in and thought through um, initially. And it's really hard to build. It's still hard to build blockchain. So how do you build that abstraction on top of the blockchain? Like, how do you build those modules that easy yep. to use? Yeah, especially when you're just, this is like basically the zero blockchain that just shipped. Yep. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. There's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, and then also makes it really hard for integrations. So imagine there is like 20 blockchains that will integrate or they will implement their own implementation for how they manage all these permissions. So it requires every wallet to understand, you know, the, the logic behind it. So there is also could be bugs and, you know, it might cause more issues. So it's definitely hard to like manage and coordinate all this work. Um, do you use a hardware wallet? I do, yeah. Which which one? 
Um, so I have Trezor, Ledger, and I also have one more. KeepKey? I have KeepKey as well. Okay. I have all of them. Oh, okay. I mean, I think I probably have the most wallets, uh, hardware and software wallets. Um, I use them for different reasons as well, mostly testing, um, you know, like some of them for like storing. Um, and I have about 60 or 70 different software wallets on my phone. Uh, so I always try to like look for inspiration, see what everyone is up to. Um, it's a very good way to learn from everyone else. Um, do you like, um, what do you think of like the kind of shared secret approaches where you have like two or three or some, some third party that can help you with recovery in case you lose your key? I think it's a good idea in general, um, just because um, how do you make sure that the recovery phrase stored for you securely? Um, I believe most people just keep it at home. Um, some people, you know, put it in a bank, which is more secure way. You always want to have a couple of backups. What if your house gets on fire, right? You don't want to lose the recovery phrase. So you want to make sure there's like multiple ways to uh, store it and also restore afterwards. Yeah, ideally, like the way, you know, big companies are doing, they have like a custody where there is, you know, multi-sig wallets that allows you to do that. Um, yeah, you can set it up where you have your like wife, your friends that you trust uh, to be um, part of the multi-sig wallet where you can, you know, access your funds. Yeah, but those are much harder to set it up. Um, it doesn't always work for all the crypto as well. So you might work for Bitcoin, but not for Ether. Do, uh, does trust, is that gonna, is it going to support recovery, like social recovery? I mean, if we're going to find an easy way to do it, yes. Um, but at the moment, it's still very difficult to design that system. Yeah, it still requires you to have all this like centralized components, like a phone number, email that we don't want to store. We don't want to store any users' uh, information, ideally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, ideally, it's somebody that you know physically, so you can kind of do like almost like QR code or Bluetooth-based connection, right? Yeah. Yeah, but those are hard. Like, so what are we trying to build? Like, our goal is like, how do we find keyless onboarding? Um, something that doesn't require you to have a password or encryption key that you use. There's a couple of options out there in the market as well. One is from Zengo, so they build a keyless solution. But at the same time, there's a different drawbacks. It's not compatible with any other wallet. Um, you know, it just works a little bit differently uh, than any other uh, wallet in general. And this is something where like the technology just came out with like TSS implementation. So there is always like some bugs coming out. So you want to make sure that you test the technology for at least a couple of years. Um, before everyone else kind of jump on board. So that's why what people are mostly doing, they're just seeing like what everyone else is doing and see if those kind of secure methods and then they will adapt. Um, do, you, do you think we can, do you, I mean, to me, it seems like there's an opportunity for an application that is just purely secret storage, right? That doesn't do anything that's crypto related, wallet related, and then can kind of like, you know, fire off a, a notification to trust, right? Or, and like, let it recover from the secret, right? That's stored there. Yeah, I think that's how you can think about like one password, right? Yeah. For us, yeah. it's basically the management for all the passwords. Yeah, it's definitely vulnerability in a way because there's everything, um, all the access. So when you uh, give up, like when someone have access to your one password, you basically screw it. So yeah. <laughs> you still want to have more kind of layers on top of it to make it uh, more secure. Yeah. But I do think that that should be done on the OS level itself. Um, I believe there could be apps, um, but still, um, I would rather trust the bigger company who holds the secrets. Yeah, and I'm. I'm hoping Apple and like um, kind of the Android side can can give us something where we can have re kind of secrets that are stored inside the hardware and trust zone, and then recovery between. Um, 
builds right B- between upgrades yeah. that was like you know my <laughs> i don't know if anyone's ever used duo right for um their seed like basically a 2fa okay. but anytime you upgrade your phone you have to rerun all your 2fa logins so if you forget to do that, there's a lot of websites that as soon as you enable to fa there's no way to recover it <laughs> if you lose it. Yeah, it's, it's but, still difficult, that yeah. process. Yeah, I, I mean, like, as bad as 2FA is, crypto is just, well, you know, like one more layer of complexity that you have to deal with. True. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why some people don't change phones is because of the 2FA codes. Yeah. <laughs> just, you just don't want to have that hassle to migrate. Yeah, that, that's pretty funny. Um, we kind of briefly chatted about developer adoption and like, um, I think like, you know, like it'd be fun to have this argument, um, you know, like publicly, like my view is that developers don't need good tools. They just need an opportunity to make money (laughs) and they will do whatever it takes to build the tools. Right. Yeah. And my argument was, is that we need developer tools. So it's simplified onboarding and like simplifying onboarding for people to get started with uh, development. I think there is a drawback. There's people who tend to like figure it out things uh, on their own. You know, people have like lots of drive and understanding the problems they want to solve. But at the same time, there is, you know, lots of people who want to build something, but they don't have enough maybe skills sometimes to actually start developing it. You know, I'll give you myself as an example. I started um, doing iOS when I didn't know any other languages. So that was my first language to get started. And I was lucky that um, I was doing iOS. But I think for me, the biggest problem was to learn faster is the language itself. Objective-C back then, uh, it's like seven years ago, was a really difficult thing to learn. So the first like two weeks, I, I was trying to understand like the syntaxes. That, that's my point exactly, okay. right? Like, so because you had an opportunity to make a big pile of money because you thought that Apple is giving you this platform with a huge number of users that pay for applications, that you were willing to bend over backwards learning this like 30-year-old language that was totally like impossible for anyone to understand at the time, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the, the argument here is that like the people who are immigrants somehow tend to do more stuff than the regular people. So the question is like, why? Like, do they have more drive in general? And that's why like they migrated to different countries. So um, I'm still trying to understand the psychology behind those decisions. But I do agree with you on the drive. Uh, the people who have, you know, drive, they will, you know, figure out any problem, no matter what. Like, they don't care about tooling. They're just going to do it. They'll find ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I see some of our competitors building what I think to me looks like wizards. You know, 90s wizards. <laughs> <laughs> Where you click through, you know, a wizard that says, hey, implement this thing. I'm like, okay, this is pretty pointless. The only people that are going to use this are the ones that, you know, potentially are... The really uh, unimaginative scammers, right? Versus yeah, true. Like in terms of wizards and like some basic, you know, templates or application, probably yes. So one example I give you, like what makes you know my work efficient is ability to have a playground and Xcode. So we usually have an app running Xcode. Like whenever you compile it, it takes like minutes. So you want to like be really fast, and we have ability to have a playground where you can like test your code. So those things like make it so easy because, you know, they're really nice. You yeah. write code, you see results on a write. It's like all real time. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, read, read REPL, re-evaluate, re-evaluate print loop. That's been, you know, I think that was one of the features that Lisp had when everybody was still, you know, in the 80s building C. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that, that that is like, I think to me is a, 
an awesome tool to have. And I'm surprised anyone builds a platform or a language that doesn't have that kind of feature. Um, yeah. I, I think like we live in a different world now. Like I think building your own tooling versus figuring out how do I integrate as much of external tools that people use already is the, uh, is kind of the trade-off. And I'm honestly, I think a large part of why Ethereum isn't much bigger is because they went their own way, right? They build their own language, their own virtual machine. Why don't they just use Python, right? Like, <laughs> why or, or Lua or anything, right? Any Or JavaScript, right? Python or JavaScript would have made the success of Ethereum much, much larger. Yeah, true. I think it's kind of also like technical debt in a way, uh, just because if you try to make it all tied together, like not decoupling, uh, it makes it hard to scale the system afterwards. It might be easy at first, but then you need to make a call and say, okay, we need to actually decouple this like large um, system and try to make it accessible to others. So the way I see it, like I like what Cosmos is doing in terms of like building their architecture for like splitting interface as a con consensus and as a platform itself. So I think those kind of make sense to me to usually split. Uh, because maybe some other one, some other blockchain developer wants to adopt this technology, so it make it easier for them to do it. Um, and making things like very component based would definitely help, you know, blockchains and in general like wallets and other like products to be developed faster. Yep. But you know, it's hard to develop it because you have limited resources, and then having good design it's still a big challenge for most developers or engineers. And you sometimes don't see like what will come. You know, when I started writing Trust, I wanted to just build ERC twenty wallet for myself. Yeah, and I never thought that there was going to be Bitcoin and then 30 other blockchains. So at first, I wasn't thinking, like, how do you make it, like, all, you know, decoupled and scalable? So. Yeah, of course. But that's fine. Like, yeah. I, I think, like, as long as you realize that, you know, you should be building those features when people want them. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> right? No, I, there's, like, this this trap of over-engineering or, or over-architecting that people can fall into. Very yeah, it's very typical. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the best engineers, they really good at actually thinking about like the complexities and finding the shortcuts to solving a problem. And for me, like whenever I look for people in my team, I want people who write less code. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. We feel the same way. Um, I mean, Bill Gates famously said that he loves the lazy engineers because yeah. they do the, they, they don't do anything that's not needed. Right. Yeah. True. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, when you think about development, you still waste lots of time on, you know, like doing code reviews and going through the code over and over again, if it's like over complicated, because sometimes you just want to like write something simple and that doesn't require to have those complicated systems. Yeah, yeah, I agreed. Where do you guys see like, I guess, wallet development in the next year? Yeah, I think um, in terms of like development itself, um, I do think that we need to build a better tooling uh, first because we still have lots of people who are in crypto or like enthusiasts and still we kind of, we hasn't crossed the chasm uh, for crypto, right? So it's still early on. Um, and so what we're trying to build is, you know, all the security features for people on the onboarding side, make sure, you know, people always have the recovery phrases. And then at the same time, we're trying to build, you know, utilities um, inside. So we're trying to give access to like staking, you know, ability to do swaps between different like blockchains so you can always have liquidity for your coins you need um, and then giving access to so cross-chain uh, swaps yeah so we're trying to like look for different protocols out there that will allow not just to swap erc20s or bap2 tokens but also like how do you swap ethereum to bitcoin okay. yeah yeah so those are still not solved problems um, at the same time, like we're looking for protocols that it's not only limited to those two, but I want to be able to swap any coin out there. Um, and then it's still a challenge. I haven't seen many teams, you know, accomplishing this goal yet.
Yeah, um, I mean, that is a super tough problem to solve because, again, every chain is its own implementation of like different parameters, right? Yeah, and you still need to have the different layer of like validators who will be doing the swaps. So you need to have a liquidity and people who will be like validators and say like, oh, there is a new order coming, yep. so I will like process it. Um, so those are um, quite tough. Uh, we do want to build like a governance system inside where you can actually vote for different like proposals because I think it's essential for people to participate in security of network. So one of the things that POS does, it gives you ability to be participant and pick who you want to be validators on the chain. Um, and so this is kind of the options we want to give to people so they have like uh, full control over the ones they choose. You know, some wallets, what they do, they kind of lock you into like a specific validator. And they're yeah. like, this is the only one you can vote. Um, but on our side, we want to like give access to all the validators. So you pick the one you prefer. That's awesome. That, that is like, um, I mean, there's for a reason you guys are my favorite wallet company. <laughs> there's a bunch that are really good, uh, but there's a lot that don't do that. Right. And it's, I think, critical, especially for like proof of stake networks, if if the only staked validators are like the exchanges or like the wallet companies, you end you end up kind of losing, right? Yeah. The network doesn't have enough decentralization where there's enough different parties that are actually invested in that specific network. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of interesting uh, as well. So what I noticed, like lots of people complained about exchanges holding, um, you know, funds of the users and staking. And people complain, oh, you know, exchanges now staking. Um, I think the issue there is actually that it's a user's fault they decided to hold their funds on the exchanges itself, yep. right? Um, because exchanges don't have an option. If they don't um, stake their coins for the users, like users will just leave because they want their like profits in that right. sense. So that's why like exchanges don't have an option. Now they give all this like support for people to stake it there. Um, but at the same time, you know, the the percentage of funds that are being staked by exchanges is much larger than like sometimes the, the full pool of all the other validators. Yeah, it's, I think it's a big, big, uh, a big downside. But the question is, well, like, how do you design PO system that kind of protects from it? Well, we're famous for pushing for 100% slashing. So for you guys, right, or for any central centralized entity, if they know that 100% of their users' funds are at risk, they're going to decentralize. Yeah. I mean, there is a couple of changes to that. You know, some, like, even if you use decentralized wallet, you don't understand the risks yet. Like, what could happen to you? People don't read, like, what are the risks of, like, um, staking. There's like, oh, I have, I know this validator. I'm gonna pick, right? What if slashing happens? Who are they gonna come to complain to? They'll come to the interface provider. They're right. not gonna go to validator. So we also need to be protective on this sense. Um, I do see like some drawbacks to giving the options for different validators. Some some validators have like different rules that they don't expose sometimes. Uh, so on Tezos, um, there's a couple of problems. First, um, every delegator uh, or validator could be oversubscribed. So you need to make sure you show this message to your user say it's, you're oversubscribed, you're not able to delegate. So if you don't, like, people don't have any rewards back. Or what other validators are doing, um, because it's done in a centralized manner on Tezos, validators actually do send transactions manually. So they're trying to calculate the profits and yep. then send it over. Um, I don't really respect that system by design just because you can just cheat and do so many bad things. Like I was staking for some time and I realized uh, validator wasn't paying me because I didn't stake enough. It was requiring to have like 1,000 um, Tezos or so. So that's actually bad because you're not able to make decisions on which uh, validator to pick. Yeah. Yeah. Very challenging. Um, you know, sometimes it's easier to do it through exchanges because you kind of make sure they will pay you because, you know, it's done in a centralized manner. Yeah. Tezos is at least self upgradable, right? So they can fix those problems. 
So yeah, that, but that hard for how long will it take? Um, I think I have you know interesting experience with Tesla in general. You know, we did see many bugs from them in terms of their implementation. Their documentation is one of the worst in the industry, to be honest. Um, the way they <laughs> describe it, I think it's it's described to people who are like very naughty. Um, it's just hard to read it. It's not documented and then just not logical in many cases. Yeah, and they're already aware of it, but they're just not making any progress on it. And we had, had to adopt. It's one of the most challenging blockchains for us to integrate. Um, it, wow. I yeah. mean, and that's saying after working with us. <laughs> no, you guys did well, so everything was good. You know, the, the easiest one that we, like, you know, there's a kind of balance between the complexity and simplicity. And so one of the easiest that was for us was like, you know, integrating like Stellar. And the reason because they have one of the best like tools out there to use. So we're able to debug from, you know, ground up if there's any issue come up and documentation is like very clear. They have ability to run nodes in different ways with different type of APIs to get transactions. So their API and also like the node infrastructure was really good. Yeah. Um, so, but at the same time, um, it doesn't mean that, you know, that's the only way to do it. You know, there's companies who just say like, oh, here's documentation, figure it out. But, you know, we just need to adapt. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, but if you want to make it, um, if you want to increase adoption, you definitely want to provide those tools as much as possible because there's different entities that work in different uh, ways. Yep. Um, um, now, like you mentioned, kind of the usability around proof of stake and um, actually delegation and earning rewards. Like to me, like, again, this is maybe a contrarian view in the industry. I feel like this proof of stake rewards and inflation is almost... Um, like disingenuine, right? If you have 99% of the network staked and you have 10% inflation, the real reward rewards are 1% that's not staked times 10, 10%, which is what? 0.01%. <laughs> because everybody's getting equally diluted except for that one unstaked slice, right? So to me, it seems like what if instead we had like a security fee? If you're not delegated, your account balance kind of draws down. Yeah, I think I would like to see more activity in general. I don't want people just stake for the whole year and not doing anything. I don't think it makes sense. And the rates are quite high, right? Like inflation, I don't know, like 6%. Uh, that's too much. Um, I don't think it works in a regular world. Uh, I have no idea, to be honest, like mathematically, how it will look uh, long term. But I think there is still lots of uh, staking is incentivized by the foundations itself, right? So they're able to pay validators, delegate the funds to them. Um, but at the same time, you definitely want to have that push at the beginning, but how do you make it sustainable long-term? Because if you try to do crazy inflation and it will go down to like 3%, um, you know, most people will undelegate and probably go somewhere else where there is more incentives. But like, I think people are mis, uh, misled by the raw inflation numbers because what matters are real returns, right? True. Uh, but, you know, if the inflation goes up, right, so number of coins increases, uh, rewards could go up as well, but the, the price of the coin goes exactly, down, right? right? Comparing to the right. USD, right? Right. Exactly. So inflation in itself, I think, is a, a almost always misleading to the user, right? Especially if they pick, like, I'm going to go with the highest inflation yep. <laughs> token. <laughs> Just like, uh, maybe that's not the, the one that you want. True. Yeah, I think, but most... POS system currently like very incentivized, still paid by the foundations. Yeah. It's not a long-term play in general. Yeah. And this kind of is because there's not enough like real adoption where real value is generated, generated by any, any of these networks. Yeah. Um, the closest one is Ethereum, I think, honestly. Like Bitcoin is Bitcoin and it's hard to like 
you know, you, you could say that it won the store value narrative, but like actual human usage of it, I think is still pretty low. Yeah, I don't think I will see much usage on that sense. Um, like, I, I do think that uh, Lightning Networks could help uh, to like increase adoption on payments, but you know, the chain itself is secure in different ways, right? It needs to be secure, stable, you know, and just be expensive. I think that's part of the blockchain itself. The chain has to be expensive. Yeah, for the Bitcoin, um, I think yes. That's kind of how you can measure your security in a way. Yeah, like, how secure it is. Like, yeah, you need to pay five uh, five dollars for the transaction. So. Yeah, I mean that's true. If it's a store value chain, then it needs to be expensive. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, even though people complain about it, but I think it makes sense in that sense that you know that's kind of how you measure security, like how how many people are staking, right? So because there's so much at stake, and you don't want to have those like penny transactions. Then. Yep. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, we're kind of you know I guess the way I think of what we're building is we're optimizing every feature as long as it doesn't sacrifice performance. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good way to look at it as well. Um, you know, at some point you also want to focus on performance and it's, you know, balance between like performance and security. Um, so you want to balance it out and see which one works better. And yeah, and like to contrary is like, I think Bitcoin optimizes store value as long as it doesn't sacrifice anything, right? They optimize every feature as long as it doesn't sacrifice store value. Yeah, so true. They're store value maximalists. Yeah, and I don't believe there's going to be any new features on Bitcoin chain itself. Yeah, um, it just it's a risk. I wouldn't take that risk to build anything new because it could just break out things. Yeah, if you have something stable, you're like very cautious about making any changes itself. Yeah, why would you? Like yeah. they, they already have a hundred fifty billion dollar asset. Like yeah. why why would you do anything to screw that up? Exactly. So what I would be building instead, like I would build different bridges that you can like swap Bitcoin to something else to utilize, yeah. right? And you can always like push like put your bitcoins back. Um, so I think that's how technology will probably play out in the next like five ten years is the interoperability between different protocols blockchains yeah and we're going to see lots of like layer two solutions as well just because they're going to be instantly fast um and kind of less secure um, but they will allow people to you know use services quicker yep yeah do you guys um do you guys see the the wallet industry consolidating in the future or is it still going to be like a you know, hundred. I think there's like what, probably thousand wallets out there. Yeah, there's definitely like thousands of wallets. Um, but at the same time, there's only a few that kind of go to the top uh, in general. So there's lots of wallets who are like specific to a blockchain. Um, but in general, I think it would be tough uh, for wallets. And uh, one of the reasons why uh, you know Trust Wallet joined Binance is because we want to be a long-term company. Um, it's very tough to uh, make money as a wallet company uh, and at the same time push for adoption because you need to like pick either one or the other. Um, being free and accessible, definitely our choice. Like we want to be accessible to everyone and so people get, get started. And we don't want to think about like, how can we make money so we can run the team? How do you guys actually, how does a wallet company make money? Um, so there's a couple of options. Um, you know, it's all about just, you know, having a big market share so you can run by like, like small fees. So, but in general, we don't charge any fees. Um, some people do like some wallets. So um, what potentially you could be making money on is first like exchanges. Uh, so you can make you know percentage out of exchanges that people like swap ERC20s or any other token. Um, also make out of all the purchases. So we have, you know, three integrations with like MoonPay, Simplex and Wire. So like people buy um, crypto with fiat. So that's one of the ways cool. where you can charge like one or 2% there. Um, but at the same time, it's not a big um, 
like amounts that you can make, but you can make your team sustainable. But you definitely need to have at least a couple of millions users so you could uh, be free on that. But then at the same time, if you don't make enough, then your team gets smaller. Uh, you don't have enough resources to move fast. And that also like you have a different mentality than like how do you optimize for profit rather than like how do you optimize for more users? Um, so I would definitely want to pick more users just because it will make adoption quicker. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so in that case, um, I see that many exchanges will have their own products as part of the ecosystem because for Binance, it's just investment in ecosystem itself. Right. So who is like the typical trust wallet user? Are, are they like just crypto holders or like speculators or are they like DAP users? Um, there's many. Um, so I think that's the issue is that we don't really know. Um, <laughs> I do like I have, you know, assumptions uh, what people like who is using trust wallet. You know, there's many people who are just hodling. I think it's typical. Um, I do believe most people don't even transact every day or neither like every month. So many people just like hold from you know back from 2017 they just check the balance how much the you know price go up or down um and so we have like different buckets of people who come to trust wallet you know there's just people who just huddle like bitcoin for example or ethereum and so if they huddle ethereum most likely they use dApps or like collectibles so we have you know community of gamers or community of traders so we build like functionality that allows you to trade on binance chain for example so we have just people who are doing like this specific thing um, so I think it's very spread out. Are we still trying to understand like what are the use cases we need to be pushing uh, forward to increase, you know, just user base. Is the is there like a, a I guess a long tail of users or is is the distribution like you know that you know power law right? You have like 20 percent of the users or eighty percent of the usage. Right? Yeah, I think um, eighty percent is hodlers. Okay, uh, that would be this way. And what what would you say is like the, like the typical or the median amount that they're holding? Uh, we don't know. Like, you don't know? Oh yeah, because yeah, how could you guys know? Like I, I guess <laughs> that's yeah, a good, we don't that's a good the answer. Data. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm curious if like I heard some numbers that there's only, like out of all the accounts, out of the 50 million blockchain wallets out there. Um, there's maybe one one million that have over a hundred dollars worth of crypto in them. Oh wow, that's that's it. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of hard to measure as well by addresses, right? Like in terms, of, like you said, fifty million. I mean, I have at least like twenty Ex wallets. Exactly <laughs> right. So this is like an upper estimate of number of users yep. is a, is at most fifty million. Yeah. Now, if you look at accounts with at least a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin in them or or any kind of crypto, then it gets down to like. You know, one million. Like you know, Stellar did a bunch of airdrops. I have, think I have like twenty bucks worth of lumens in my keybase. Uh, it's actually cool. I really like what they did there. Uh, I think their main challenge was like, how do you like avoid scammers? Yeah, because people were like signing up on the keybase with like so many scam accounts. But then, yeah, I. So I haven't used any of my lumens, even though I have twenty dollars worth. And I don't know what to use them for or why would I Yeah, just huddle and trust wallet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good idea. At least I'll try that. I'll try setting my lumens from Keybase to trust wallet. You know what I did? So I pushed, uh, I sent it back to trust and then I was like, what can I do now with them? And I actually went to a website called Bidali and, and they sell a gift card. So I was able to buy a gift card. I forgot what it was, like Uber. And so I actually put the credits back on Uber. Oh, that's pretty cool. Wow. That's... <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I was talking to the guy who created the service and said and he said that once the you know Stella run the airdrop, all the users came to their website to buy different cards. So it was kind of cool because 
um, the Stellar incentivizing buying gift cards but and using crypto. That's not that's not a good thing for Stellar, right? <laughs> yeah, true. Right. The the first airdrop was I think was a, ba- a Bank America card. It was like the what bootstrapped Visa, and this was in a market where there were a lot of merchants and they were able to identify the merchants and their customers, and they sent the air, basically the airdrop to both. Really? When was that? This was in the 60s, I believe. Okay. So about 60,000 people got fully activated credit cards. That's very cool. And they identified the households that had like the right, the kind of the right spending and go to all the local merchants. And before that, like all these households had different credit lines with every different merchant. And every merchant had to manage like all of their accounts on their own. So they actually solved the problem, one for the merchants, because they no longer had to have a back office to deal with all these credit lines, and for the users, because they didn't have to manage 20 credit lines. So okay. that was why it was successful. That's, that's cool, though. <laughs> but like, so if you just do a random airdrop, just to your users, it, I don't see like where you start creating network effects, right? Like. Um, yeah, so, because you give away money for free, so people just, you know, the, there's no incentive to like, Hold it. Right. Or the people that are at least the most active people are going to do what you said, right? They're going to go find a gift card and then convert and then drop it into Uber. And like the only people that get any benefit out of that are the middlemen that are doing all the exchanges in a space that's all about removing the middlemen. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And that's a challenge. Like, um, you know, it's very difficult to find any services that you can utilize them on. But I do think that creating those bridges still makes sense because you want to simplify. Um, just use of crypto. You know, there's lots of people in Brazil who's, you know, getting paid in maybe crypto and they just utilize those gift card services to like get credits on different services itself. Yeah. 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 But otherwise, like how would you pay for you know services in your country? Most people don't accept crypto. Neither was able to find any stores here like in Bay Area that accept Bitcoin. I'm still looking for one. I want to get coffee with Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the like US, China, Europe, I think is fairly so developed that people don't even take dollars, right? Like in China, nobody even wants to take credit cards because they yep. just want you to use Alipay yep. or WeChat or WeChat Pay. But outside of like those main countries, you go to like some Eastern Europe, like Ukraine, people take dollars and convert it for you. Yeah, right? easily. And the, and the calculator. Yeah, I would rather take dollars in Ukraine. It's more stable. <laughs> so I, I bet most people in Ukraine that are aware of Bitcoin will take Bitcoin too. Yeah, uh, it's actually interesting. So when I was in Ukraine back when I was like studying, I think it was one to five, um, the conversion rate. And I think my parents told me it's like one to 27 now. So, uh, yeah. so that's in like five, seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Hyperinflation is something that a lot of countries face. And interestingly enough, goes back to this inflation thing is that there's a lot of proof of stake networks that are building in hyperinflation into their protocols. Really? Which ones? Well, like anything with like a six to 10% inflation, right? That's increasing supply without demand. Like monetary yeah. policy should be based on increasing supply when the when there's the economy grows so fast that you're seeing deflation, right? Mm-hmm. So monetary policy is there to increase supply so you don't see deflation. So how do you make it dynamic? Well, we have the federal exchange that looks at all these numbers and makes this complicated decision to keep inflation at 2%, right? That, that's their target. So there's a kind of a mandate, let's keep inflation at 2%. 
And based on how the economy grows, they try to adjust the monetary policy to do that. How does it know where to grow? Like, what are the key metrics? Is the measure for for the U.S.? Yeah, um, it's a ton of stuff. But like the the kind the kind of the base variables are like corporate profits, payroll, taxes, like all the stuff, employment, like, and they look at total economic activity of all the goods that were purchased and sold, and try to see is it growing or shrinking. If it's growing faster than inflation, it means you're going to start seeing deflationary, mm. like the dollar is going to appreciate value, right? <laughs> and that's a bad thing because then people huddle dollars instead of spending them on, on services or investing mm-hmm. them, right? You never want like your currency to be a better investment than progress, right? Yeah, that from sense. from like you know from a United States perspective, right? So, uh, to me, like yeah. But at the same time, like in protocol land, do you want people to like if you have inflation, but it's not going anywhere, you're just like creating hyperinflation, right? You need actual usage to drive it. So I'm I'm worried about all these models. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I mean, we slightly discussed this, right? Is that like you need to kind of balance it out and, you know, it's okay to have it like on the first day of lunch when you have like 6%, but then it needs to go down based on the user base it will get because you need to have incentives for people to come in, learn um, and start using it. But then like, uh, where, where do you draw a line where it's like, okay, now we need to have those like dynamic inflation and how do we build that? Yep. Like based on like what key metrics? Because it's difficult to get all the data from outside. So it needs to be based on the activity on the blockchain. And then how do you make a, how do you even implement dynamic inflation in a trust minimizing way, right? So yeah. you, you need governance, right? And then you need users that are aware that there's governance. And, you know, trust, you need them to use Trust Wallet that exposes a user interface to where they can go vote on the stuff and make yeah. intelligent decisions. And I think the other challenge as well, because it's so transparent, there's people who will try to find loopholes and try to actually yep. make it like hyperinflation based on like, you know, the numbers they will be tracking. Exactly. Um, yeah, there's there's potential for really interesting attack vectors where in like DAOs, right? Yeah. A cabal could take over DAO and short it at the same time. And then like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, interesting things. Um, but uh, I'm like, I can't imagine working on anything else in software right now or in engineering that is like as interesting, like that has so much complexity and depth to it. Yeah, um, I think it's one of the reasons I actually in crypto as well. Like once I came in, I realized how first the industry is like so uh, low in terms of the development itself. There is like everything is missing. Like so many things to develop, so many opportunities to work on, and you know, just have that freedom to you know build um, anything. So you you won't be worried about like Facebook or Twitter shutting down the APIs from the blockchain. You're yeah. like you know that you're building a service, and here's the API layer that I have, and I'm confident that nothing is gonna come down to this. So I guess I was talking to a few people who were like building companies in the past, and you know, tr- Twitter like shut down the API, their company just being destroyed. Like yeah. you'll be demotivated to build any products in that ecosystem. So I think yeah. in blockchain, that's one of the benefits because you have that uh, transparency from the blockchain level where they expose all the things that possible and you can write pretty much any application. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is like, that is one, there's so much awesome, right? And yeah. that, that is one of those things. Is that like, and the, it, it's also like kind of crazy to think that, you know, writing code, it's just code. It's literally speech, right? Yeah. We're just creating information and that information the fact that it's able to organize large groups of people right into concrete action that has value that's the crazy part yeah. <laughs> um cool well i think uh we're getting close 
we're, we're uh, getting close to the end of the podcast. Um, do you want to like, I don't, I don't know if you want to pitch trust wallet, but it's, I tried a bunch of wallets and trust wallet was my favorite one out of the ones I experimented with. And I was like, we need to, we need to integrate with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the integration as well into like trust wallet. So I think, um, so everyone knows like the way we architected our system. So we wanted to pay tech debt uh, early on. And so the way we architected the system, so we made it open source. So any blockchain project who want to build their own implementation into Trust Wallet, um, they just come in and do integration. So the way the system is designed, you do um, all the lower level implementation in C++, and then we just expose the methods that uh, the interfaces would need. So iOS and Android, for example, we just need to have a few interfaces like a model for the transaction and then you know address, um, and then that's it. So there is nothing else the iOS app needs to know about the blockchain itself. So you just but, pass the data, sign it, and get information back. But there's, but it also like supports features like staking, yep. right, and and delegation. And if you're building a blockchain, right, if you're competing with Solana, I suggest that you start working on that integration now <laughs> as early as possible, so you can understand the kind of the fit, the the mistakes you're making in your assumptions about how users are going to stake and delegate yep. and do all those things. Yeah, so starting that as early as possible, I think, is really, really beneficial. Um, not not every uh, wallet does actually have that ability because they're trying to be like very close sourced. Um, yeah. But I think it's you know nice to be a part of the Binance to have actually this opportunity to work on this like blockchain projects. And we know that we're not the first, we're not the only wallet who's using it as well. So there's yeah. many wallets who are using it too. So it means that whenever you integrate that, they would be able to take advantage of it and utilize Solana as well. Oh, you, 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 there's already other wallets that are using your yeah, open source module. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah, really so, cool. Yeah. That's like what you want to see in open source. That's yeah. like a, the true mark of success of an open source project. Yeah. And we even have like internal OKRs to make sure that there is enough like wallets will integrate in the next year. So when I kind of push that forward too. That's really cool. Well, um, I'm uh, like even more impressed now with with, uh, you and your team and what you guys have been able to accomplish. Um, So thank you for being in the podcast. This was a super fun conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was interesting. Thank you.